On April 15th, explosions and gunfire begin to rock the Sudanese capital of Khartoum, with the paramilitaries and army exchanging accusations of attacking each other's bases. Two heavily armed groups squaring off in one of the most populated cities in Africa. And a stark warning by the UN that the humanitarian situation on the ground is reaching a breaking point. Kasia, or Cartagena Grabska, is a senior researcher at PRIO, an anthropologist who researches issues of artistic practice in the context of war, gender, youth, issues of displacement and refugees. She's one of thousands of people who were evacuated from Sudan aboard a rescue flight just a few days ago. Today, on this special episode, we catch up with Kasia and her witnessing of the war and her extraordinary evacuation. I am Arno Siad, and you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. Kesha, where are you now and how are you doing? Uh, so right now I'm in Geneva, Switzerland, in my house uh, where I live. I came back uh, a week ago on Thursday and I'm trying to, I suppose, digest everything that happened uh, in the past uh, two, three weeks and trying to find um, a way to, to live in the reality that used to be my normal life before I went to Hartum uh, on the 8th of um, April. So it's not an easy process because uh, for me, this being in Hartum during that time, it wasn't just a work trip that I was doing, but it's a place that in many ways represents a home and a long-lived research and, and work and personal commitment. And that home you talk about became a war zone in which you had to spend quite a bit of time. Tell us what it was like and what was happening on the ground. So I came to Khartoum uh, for the uh, research uh, with Prio, uh, Inspire Research Project, on the 8th of April. And uh, the first few days were very calm, normal situation. I was doing my research with, with artists that I work with, visiting also friends, people that I've known for many years. And then all of a sudden, on the 15th of uh, April, it was a Saturday, Saturday morning, we were sitting in the garden of uh, my friend with whom I was staying in the middle of Khartoum, in the governmental area, residential area of Khartoum. We heard some shootings. Um, we were just getting ready to go to a work uh, that we've designed with our, with the artists that we work with there in Khartoum. We heard the shootings and we thought, uh, oh, maybe this is just a student demonstration. There has been a lot of demonstrations and different types of uh, protests going on since uh, 2019. But then very quickly, we've realized that the sporadic shooting turned into full-blown bombardments, uh, planes that were throwing bombs, different types of explosions. And all of this was happening really around the house where we were. So there was a panic. We didn't know what was going on. We started getting messages from friends and from colleagues who kept saying, well, we can't do the, the open space, this atelier that we've planned with the artists. We had to cancel this. We can't go. We don't know what is happening, who is fighting whom. And then very quickly, it became apparent that this was the Sudanese army clashing with the paramilitaries, the rapid support forces of General Hemeti. So we thought, you know, okay, they are demonstrating their sort of masculine power and it will finish towards the end of the day. We knew there were tensions between the two parties for a while. 
But that didn't happen. There was more and more escalation. There was very intense fighting in the area where we were staying. We heard the airport was taken over by the paramilitaries. There were more and more reports uh, that the presidential palace was also taken over by the paramilitaries. The presidential palace was very close to us. So the next nine days, uh, we spent under the bombs, uh, not being able to leave the place, the house where we were. Uh, nobody was willing to come and help us to get out of there because this was quite a dangerous area with, with constant shooting and constant bombing. On the day one, we uh, the electricity was cut, so we had no more electricity, we had no more water. We had some water supply for another two, three days, but after three days, we ran out of it. Uh, we also had some diesel for the generator for three days, but then we ran out of it. And then we started running out of network. So, you know, in many ways, I would say we were living what many people in Khartoum were living through at that point, being under constant bombardments with the uncertainty of not knowing if you're able to connect to your close ones, if you're able to get out, if you're able to get food, water, supplies. But at the same time, we were in a much better situation than many, many other people because our area was somehow protected by the military. Uh, at least we had that impression that we were protected by the military. Uh, later on, it turned out to be slightly different. Hmm. And at which point did it become clear that you had to evacuate? I mean, we've heard stories of chaotic evacuations. And my question is, how did you manage to leave Sudan? On day one, when the shooting started, as I said, I was thinking, you know, that's going to take a day and then things will cool down. On day two, I realized, well, probably it's worth register with some different places, uh, different embassies. So I have a double nationality, Polish and American. So I quickly registered with the Americans, with the help of some friends. Um, not an easy process because you had to register over email and online. Then I registered with the Germans. I also registered with the Swiss because I live in Switzerland. I didn't know that we had a Polish embassy at that point. We didn't have Polish embassy uh, until this year, really. Um, but then I think the Swiss informed me that there was a Polish representation. So I, I got a number of them and then I registered with them. And I also registered with the French because working closely with the research center, with a French research center in Khartoum. So many of my colleagues, you know, they are French and they all said, well, you have to register with us. So I was on all these different lists. And I would say two weeks ago now, so this was a Thursday, this was about, you know, five days into the conflict. We had a short connection to the generator and uh, we watched some news and we got the message that the Americans were evacuating their staff from the embassy. And that was the point in which I realized the situation is extremely complicated. None of these countries that are trying to mediate humanitarian corridors are able to do this. None of the humanitarian corridors and truces that they've negotiated held. All of them, you know, failed. And we could hear it because every time we heard there was a humanitarian corridor, we could hear fighting and shooting around our house. So we knew this is a complete failure. And I realized if the Americans are taking out their staff, that's the moment that that means that things are really out of control and that I need to leave quickly. So I tried to contact all these different uh, embassies and, and these different places where I had my registration. The Americans kept saying to me, shelter in and keep your battery, which was not very useful. 
And the French uh, finally, a few days later, announced that there was a place where I should get to, and from there we would be evacuated. And then I also got in touch through some contacts with uh, Sudanese colleagues and people that I didn't know, and I knew that I knew that they were going through e- Egypt. So I also considered that option. And then finally, this was a Sunday morning, uh, the 22nd, I think, of April, I got a message at 5.30 in the morning that there was a flight uh, organized by the Spanish embassy and that I had to get to the Spanish residence uh, because the Polish uh, citizens who were in Khartoum, who were a very small group, were going to be evacuated uh, through this means. The evacuation was very challenging because where I was uh, staying, on the house of my friend, this was a location to which it was extremely difficult to get to. And I tried several different contacts, uh, several different possibilities, and nobody wanted to come, including some mercenary that I called, wanted to come and get me out from there. So finally, the honorary consul of Poland, he uh, found a driver who promised he will come and get me. So he was going to come on Sunday. So this was a very, you know, very stressful situation. He finally came, but we ter- it turned out that I had to do part of the journey on foot, walking through all the different checkpoints with the military, paramilitaries. We didn't know if they would let us go. Uh, so it was a very tense situation. And then the journey that normally would take from the house of my friend to the residence of the Spanish ambassador that was supposed to take 15 minutes, it took three and a half hours because we had to go around the whole city because there was so much insecurity and so much fighting. A city under fire. Yes, the city under fire. And, you know, despite the fact that that was the three-day truce negotiated by the UN and Americans and everybody else to evacuate foreigners. So finally we made it. This was a a journey uh, which I find quite um, emblematic in a sense because at some point we picked up We gave a ride to three women from South Sudan, from an ethnic group that I work with very closely in South Sudan, the Nuer. And it turned out that these women knew the family I lived with in South Sudan when I did my doctoral research there. So, you know, there was also some beauty Hmm. in this uh, incredibly stressful situation. So, yes, finally we got to the embassy and then there was a convoy that was also very problematic. At the end of the day, um, when we waited, finally we left with a convoy to the military base outside of Khartoum under the escort of the paramilitaries and sort of going through several different checkpoints, being shot at, being stopped, also being asked if there are any Sudanese with us. We actually had quite a lot of Sudanese with us in the convoy. So it was a very clear politics of you know, not letting Sudanese leave the country, but only letting those who had foreign passports leave. That actually leads me to my next question. I mean, you describe Sudan as a home, and I assume you've left behind a network of friends and and, and, and people. So what do you hear from them? Yes, for me, this is a very, this is a very personal story. This is a very personal war, I suppose. Because as I said, I've worked in Sudan for many years, since 2005, with Sudanese people, South Sudanese people. Uh, I lived in Khartoum. I've been doing, um, I've been doing a lot of uh, research um, in, the, in, in Khartoum itself, but also uh, around in South Sudan and other parts of Sudan. So Sudan is a place, Khartoum is a place of home for me. You know, it, it, It's a place where um, my youngest son, 
spent his first two and a half years of his life. And where my older son, when he talks about home, he always says he wants to go back to Khartoum. Uh, so these are important places. And for me, it was very difficult to leave because it was not only about getting out of a place that became an impossible place of war, but it was about leaving friends, people that I've known, people that I've been close to, colleagues, leaving them behind because many of them, they can't leave. You know, the whole group of artists that I work with for the past uh, two and a half years in the context of the prior research, all of them are still in Khartoum or, or just outside of Khartoum. And I am in contact with them regularly, every day. Some are doing well, some ended up in, in very difficult uh, situations. Some of them we don't have contact with anymore because they probably run out of network, water, electricity, who knows. So there is, um, for me, this is a very difficult moment. It's probably more difficult than being under the bombs when kind of realize everybody is in the same situation. Right now, I'm in the privileged situation, and they are not. Mm -hmm. And this week, a ceasefire was agreed in principle, but we hear that fighting is continuing in the capital, Khartoum, between the army and the paramilitary groups. Do you see the situation improving anytime soon? And what will it take? I think we've heard about the ceasefires from the very beginning, from day one. They've been negotiating ceasefires. And every single ceasefire has been broken. Right now, there is very heavy uh, bombing and shelling in Khartoum. I got some messages even this morning, some friends uh, who sent me uh, videos and, and sound material. So there is not much of a, uh, of a change in the way this conflict is being waged between the two parties. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that this is continuing is because what I said earlier, this became a very personal conflict between these two generals. And they see it very much as a personal vengeance. So they are kind of personal vendetta at the cost of lives and well-being and everything that Sudanese civilians have. I have to say that I'm very skeptical about the prospect of this situation coming to an end. And this is because there are many different negotiating parties, many different, uh, you know, uh, countries that are trying to negotiate, the Americans, the, Emir the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Egyptians, uh, different European countries, you know, the African Union, IGAD. So you have all these different parties involved, but they have different alliances. You know, some of them supported Hemeti, some of them supported Burhan. Then these alliances changed. So there is no united voice and there is no united leverage. And I think as with the evacuations that you mentioned at the beginning, that there was chaos with evacuations, there's also this chaos and lack of common uh, understanding and common willingness to actually stop this war among the different parties involved. This is really a global conflict in that sense. Keshia, good to know you're home safe and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. This episode was edited by Brage Pedersen and includes a clip from Middle East Eye.